0: heard the little adage between a rock and a hard place but few of us have experienced it quite the way that Jay Rathman did a number of years ago. Jay was a 45-year-old employee of the Defense Department. He was hunting in Northern California. He was working his way up the side of a mountain to, to put himself on a ledge to get a, a better view of the terrain As he was making his way up, just as he got up to the ledge, he lifted his head over just to to view the the landscape on the ledge. And he sensed a presence just off to his right. And as he turned, he saw a four foot rattlesnake coiled and it struck at him. Uh, The rattlesnake got its fangs entangled in his wool turtleneck sweater he could feel the venom the warm venom of the of the snake running down his neck as you can expect he lost something of his composure he let go of the ledge and then he found himself catapulting downward along the side of the mountain lodging himself between two large stones only his feet were up and his head was down he began to feel the blood rushing down from his feet to his head. The snake coiled around his neck and he realized he needed to act rather quickly. He dislodged the snake from his sweater and the snake made several, eight attempts to bite him. He had his head at a particular angle and the nose of the snake kept hitting just below his eye. He said he realized at that moment something that he had never known before, and that is snakes don't blink. And there he was, as he was able to get his hands around the neck of that snake, that rattlesnake, and he literally choked it to death. He said his fingers were so embedded in that snake's throat. That it was very difficult to shake it, to shake himself free of it. Later in the afternoon, he walked into the office of the of the um, those who oversaw the the uh, terrain, the camp, and he held it up and he said, "I've got to, I've got a complaint against your wildlife." Well, he knows what it's like to be between a, a rock and a hard place, and so do you and so do I, not necessarily in the way that, that Jay Rathman experienced it, but we've been in situations and circumstances like that. To be between a rock and a hard place is to be in a seemingly impossible situation. And to be in, to be in such a circumstance that we actually don't know what to do one option looks as bad as the other option and sometimes it paralyzes us and what often makes it even worse is we're not there because of any misconduct or sinful or unwise decisions on our own part we may be caught in a in a downturn at the plant and our release from our employment had absolutely nothing to do with the kind of employee we were. We were just at that part of the, that part of the ladder, that part of the, of the system that was, that was let go. And there we are between a rock and a hard place. That's exactly where the Israelites are in Exodus chapter 14. In just a moment, we'll see that in front of them is the Red Sea and behind them is the Egyptian military. And the reason that they're in that particular predicament is not because of bad decisions, poor planning. They had followed God's lead, God's plan, God's direction. And now they found themselves in an impossible circumstance, an unbelievable situation. To go forward with certain death. You didn't learn to swim in the ancient world. You didn't, you didn't give your children swimming lessons. Two million people. To go, to go forward was death. To turn and fight would lead to slaughter. The might of the Egyptian military, the very, the very best of Pharaoh's forces, were breathing down their neck and they had nowhere to turn. They were between a rock and a hard place. I think there's some things that we can can learn from this passage today. The first one is this, that that God sometimes leads us in strange ways. And we might even say to strange places. We see this in their encampment by the Red Sea. Follow along as I read the first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-haroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Siphon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering, wandering around the land in confusion hemmed in by the desert. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. But it's, You'll notice in verse 1, God's speaking to Moses about all of this. There's 2,000 people. The word's not going to spread very far. God's at work behind the scenes. God's at work in the world of spiritual reality, a world that we don't see. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's going to turn the minds of the Egyptians to the point where they're going to regret having let the Israelites go. It's an odd strategy. It's a strange strategy. I I thought about it this week, and this is the way that I put it God's strategy is stunning and unpredictable. He appears to be leading Israel into a trap. In front of them is the Red Sea, behind them will soon be the Egyptian military. God's purposes aren't always immediately discernible to his people. What are they to think? How are they to respond? They're following God's leadership. They're following God's man, Moses. And now they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. In front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them will be the Egyptian military. What are they to do? Where are they to turn? There doesn't seem to be any way out. That's the way that life is when you get between a rock and a hard place. We pull the covers up over our head. We reach for a bottle or a set of pills. We lash out at those that we love. We feel hemmed in. We don't feel like we can move. We don't know what to do. We're paralyzed. That's exactly where they were. I want you to notice, secondly, the the danger of saying no to God. Uh, Pharaoh had said no to God over and over and over and over again. God didn't sit passively by like some self-indulgent grandfather. God responded to his nose by hardening Pharaoh's heart even more. Culminating in the death of the firstborn, but God's not through with Pharaoh. God's not finished with the Egyptians. Uh, the country's been devastated through these plagues. Uh, you would wonder how in the world can you not get it through your thick skull? You can't defeat God's people. You can't defeat God. But when your heart is hard and your mind is dark and you're recalcitrant to the will and the ways of God... You act like an insane person. You act like a, a madman, a mad woman, out of control. And so you, you push yourself into deeper and darker places. That's what Pharaoh does. He says in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We had free labor, they're thinking. These people were enslaved to us for centuries. They did our work. They built our cities. We let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took about 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers and all their men. Then the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Little did the Israelites know that God was at work. Little did Pharaoh know that he was God's instrument and God's tool. It says in verse 9, The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi-haruth, opposite baal Zephon. So there's the situation, there's the circumstance. Israel has been led out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. God has devastated the Egyptians. The Israelites plundered Egypt when they left. God so moved in the hearts of the Egyptians, they wanted them to leave so badly, they gave them silver and gold and loaded them down. Then God leads them out and they, they wander around under God's leadership and then they, they circle back around and they find themselves in a terrible, terrible place. Not by their own doing, not as the result of their sin, but as the result of following God's will. They had no idea what was going on. They had no idea what God intended to do. All they saw were the circumstances that they were in. And this is where we see the danger of short-term memory. Uh, The strange desire to return to Egypt. In this passage, in verses 10 through 14, we're going to see that the immediate reaction of God's people is doubt, anger, and disbelief. Doubt, anger, and disbelief. And in fact, they want to go back to Egypt. They're wondering why they ever left Egypt. They forget that when they were in Egypt, they were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They forgot that they had experienced infanticide. Many of them had had their little baby boys ripped from their arms and thrown in the Nile River. And they're saying, I wish we were back in Egypt. I wish we could go back and live in the the slums of Egypt. Better to, to live in Egypt in the slums and to have our children thrown into the Nile River than for us to die in the wilderness. So it says in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached the Israelites, looked up. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Their entire perspective now has been clouded. They have absolutely no idea what they're saying. And yet Moses responds and he gives them three commands. He's going to tell them, do not be afraid. You wonder, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's only possible if you don't have short-term memory if you remember who God is, what God's done, how God's blessed. He says, do not be afraid, stand firm, don't be cowards, be bold and courageous because of the God you serve. Not your own military prowess or strength, but because of the God you serve and be still and the Lord will fight for you. That's the promise. God promises the Lord will fight for you. Listen to Moses' response. Moses answered the people Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to take up arms. You don't have to put the women and children behind you and then launch out into what's going to be an absolute slaughter. Be still, don't be afraid, trust in God. See what he'll do. What we see in verses 15 through 22 is exactly what God will do. God will fight for them. There's going to be the parting of the Red Sea. One of the most miraculous and spectacular miracles in the history of the Bible takes place. Liberal scholars have, for centuries, have tried to discount this event. They've tried to find ways to explain it naturally, rationally. And yet there's no rational, natural explanation for a body of water that is parted so that two million people can walk through, and then there's enough water that, that, that comes back over the Egyptians and they're and they're demolished. We believe it because we believe the Bible is the Word of God, it's a historical event. But often people that we talk to and, and share with, they, they, they discount it. They, they suggest, along with many liberal scholars, it's mythology. It's the myth of an ancient people. Uh, a story that's been spun and told so many times that it grows and grows, and, and now it's, well, it's literally unbelievable. Uh, let me recommend... Uh, a book to you. Actually, it's a, it's a study Bible, the Apologetic Study Bible. The, the Apologetic Study Bible is a study Bible that was edited by our own Ted Cable. As you read through that Bible, it deals with situations and circumstances like this that inform our faith and help us to answer liberal accusations against what the Bible says and describes to be his historical events. So in verses 15 through 22, notice what the author writes. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night, the cloud, of, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. God was traveling with his people. He was guiding them by day with a pillar of fire. I'm sorry, by a, by a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And so as the Egyptians are thinking and plotting and planning and ready to launch their attack, uh, God causes intense darkness between the Egyptians and the And the Israelites. The last time there was a darkness like this, all the firstborn of Egypt died. It was so dark and cumbersome that they weren't able to launch or attack. But on Israel's side, even into the night, there was, there was light. And God performed this unbelievable miracle and two million people passed through the Red Sea on dry, on dry ground. The last part of the chapter deals with uh, the destruction of the Egyptians and the purposes of God. Just as the last of the Israelites make their way through the the dry ground, the sun is coming up, the darkness is dissipating, uh, the the chief god of the Egyptians was the sun god. And just as the Egyptians' great god is causing light to illuminate the darkness. With the, with the launching of the day, they begin to launch in after the Israelites. And then as they, as they get into the midst of the sea, where it has now been dry, and the Egyptians are following the Israelites, God begins to cause all kinds of confusion. And the horses become untenable, and the chariots begin to get, to get stuck. And then in, in the flash of an eye, all of that water comes crushing down on the Egyptians. And then as the Israel look, Israelites look back, there's bodies floating on the Red Sea. Hundreds and hundreds of dead horses and Egyptian soldiers. We might wonder, is that... Is that the kind of God we serve? Absolutely, that's the kind of God we serve. We like like that indulgent God. The God that says, you know, I understand that you're in and out, on and off, up and down, hot and cold in your spiritual life. I understand that. It's fine, I'll look the other way. No, our God is a God of love and a God of judgment. A God of love and a God of wrath. Our God will not allow his name to be mocked and maligned he there there's action It's not always when we think it will happen, but it will happen, and this is an example of it. These are the same people that had enslaved God's people for centuries. These are the same people that committed infanticide, the same people that took little Hebrew babies, ripped them from their mother's arms, threw them into the Nile River. They're experiencing the same kind of judgment they had inflicted on the people of God. And so we see... The destruction and and over and over we see that it's for the glory of God's name. So God could be known. The, The plagues were intended so that the Egyptians would know that there is one true God. But they refused to believe what they experienced. They refused to see what they should have seen. That is, as they were being inflicted, those in Goshen, the Israelites, remember, they weren't suffering the plagues in the way that the Egyptians were. It was intended that God be glorified and his name be known. They refused to glorify God. They refused to acknowledge God and they suffered the consequences, the consequences of it. And yet we're a little surprised, I, I am, as I, when I read this, about Israel. So there they are, trapped between a rock and a hard place, between the Red Sea and an Egyptian army. And immediately they forget what had happened over a course of eight months the plagues that, that began with water of the Nile turning to blood and culminating with the death of the firstborn, all of their firstborn being, being preserved by the blood of the Lamb, they had forgotten so quickly. And yet, before I uh, criticize them too much and cast stones too quickly in their direction, I, I find myself often responding in a similar way. When things don't go the way that I thought they would, when my plans go awry, when my hopes and dreams seem to dissipate, which is the normal course of life, I fail to realize that God has greater hopes and plans for me, that God's hemming me in between a rock and a hard place because he he wants to teach me something about who he is and about who I am. Because, you know, I think that at 60 and saved at 19, maybe I've arrived. Maybe I'm there. Maybe, I, maybe I've grown as much as I'm going to grow, and, and I'm at my spiritual pinnacle. Well, that's stupid thinking, isn't it? It's the way that I sometimes think, but it's still stupid. Uh, I, want you to, 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 I want us to learn from Israel's example You know, sometimes we we hear people say, well, you shouldn't learn morals from the Old Testament stories. Well, that's stupid too. But as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 said, these things, in fact, he's pointing to these very events happened as an example to you so that you can learn from them. We, We ought to learn something about faith, who God is, and who we are, but that's not all that we should learn. We've seen this numerous times in the book of Exodus that Exodus is part of a bigger book, and that every chapter in Exodus is part of Exodus. That is, there's the chapter that's part of the book, and that book is part of the bigger book. And and I want to talk about that as well. Uh, What is this particular story and this particular event? How does it fit into redemptive history? How does this event set a trajectory that we see later in the Bible? Well, I want to begin by sharing a few things about when we find ourselves in seemingly impossible situations and how God uses them in our lives. Four things very quickly. First, seemingly impossible situations break us of our independence and teach us of how dependent we must be on God. See, we've been raised in Western Christianity, which really isn't a very robust form of Christianity at all. We've been raised in the John Wayne kind of Christianity. Me and my Bible. That's not the way that we've been saved. We're part of a body. We're part of the people of God. There's nothing about us that should be independent contractors. You see, seemingly impossible situations teach us that we're too independent. We need to be more dependent upon God. That independence demonstrates itself when we begin to pull the cover up over our heads. We sink into the, into the slew of despond. Uh, we begin to, to push the church away. Uh, and that's, that's the result of an independent form of Christianity. So when we're between a rock and a hard place, we learn, I am not independent. I need to be dependent upon God. The second thing is this. Seemingly impossible situations humble us, causing us to recognize how weak we are and how much we must rely on God's strength. When we're between a rock and a hard place, Regardless of what that is, relationally, financially, spiritually what we find, what we find out is we're not who we thought we were. We are not what we know. That's what we think. I, I think I am what I know. I know quite a bit. So I must be something significant. No, I am not what I know. I am what I live, out of what I know. And, and I recognize how weak I am, how much more I have to grow. And so seemingly impossible situations cause us to recognize how weak we are, how strong God is. Third, seemingly impossible situations teach us how quickly we lose perspective. Over an eight-month period, God devastated the Egyptians, the Israelites, and Goshen watched it unfold, and they must have left Egypt with their faith beaming. They must have been as as convinced about God's power and goodness and greatness than they've ever been. They are his covenant people. They're the, the seed of Abraham. And then when they get in this unbelievably difficult bind, and they're there by divine providence, not by human miscalculation, they lose perspective. They turn on God, they turn on God's servant. They've totally forgotten what all that God has done for them, who God has been to them. They've forgotten all of that. They needed to know it, just like we need to know it. Why does God put us in those situations so we can see who we are and we can see who he is and we are reminded of how much we need him? Uh, The last thought is this, seemingly impossible situations Teach us how limited our human intelligence truly is and how much we need divine wisdom. James put it this way, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. It will be without any, and let him ask without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man, it's like James is pointing out a particular, let not that man, the one that's driven and tossed by the wind, let not that man expect he will receive anything from the Lord. Now what James is saying is you do lack wisdom. I lack wisdom. We need wisdom, particularly when we're between a rock and a hard place, particularly when life gets difficult. We get our perspective clouded. The worst time to make important decisions is when our perspective is out of kilter because we find ourselves in the midst of a difficulty. So we, we pick up arms and we head toward the Egyptians. That's all obvi- going to be evident slaughter. We launch out into the Red Sea. That's going to be, bring destruction. We need wisdom. But God only gives wisdom to those who ask without doubting. And yet when we hear that, we wonder, well, who could have faith like that? Only Jesus had a faith that didn't doubt without any doubting. Most of us relate very well to the man who came to Jesus. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Our faith is tinged with unbelief. Uh, But lest we be mistaken, he says, the the one who doubts is like the the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. I've used this illustration with you before. uh, Growing up on the East Coast, it would be like me taking a a beach ball and throwing it out into the ocean and, and it's up and down it's brought in close when the waves take it in it's it's taken out when the when the when the tide goes out there's no consistency in the double-minded unstable person there's no spiritual consistency they're high they're low they're in they're out they're on they're off there's no settled determination Christ is Lord whether it's good days or bad days hard times or great times let not that man, he says, expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. But this particular event, is, is, it's interesting because of the reference that it's made in chapter 13 and chapter 14. We'll see it in other places as well. As they wandered in the wilderness, God would lead them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now God, God is manifesting his presence to them. When they saw the cloud guiding them in the day they reminded god is with us and god is guiding us and then when they would set up camp and they would plant themselves at night and the, and the darkness would would be is so at times so heavy in the wilderness when a clouded sky covers up the moon there's the pillar of fire God is with his people. God is there with them. It made such a deep impression on them that they developed a festival. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Every year after the feast, after the temple was built, Jewish people from all over the world, if they were able, they would descend on Jerusalem. And they would sleep out under the stars in, in makeshift tents, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And as they would set out under the stars at night, they would build a fire and the family would gather around the campfire and the father would begin to tell the story of how God brought the, brought the Israelites out of Egypt by devastating the Egyptians and how God provided manna to feed them in the wilderness and water for them to drink, two million of them. Every day, enough bread to eat and enough water to drink. And God was there during the day by cloud, during the night by fire. And every evening during the, during the festival, at some point in the evening, there would be the, the lighting of a gigantic candelabra a huge candelabra. And in fact, they would, they would use the tattered clothing of the priest as wicks drenched in the oil of the candelabra and then they would illuminate them. Uh, the ancient writers would say that the entire, the entire temple precinct would be illuminated. And there they would descend tens of thousands in the temple precinct in the court of the women and, and they would dance and sing and worship all night long. Now, not Baptists, they're dancing. They're dancing and exulting and lifting their hands up to the God that has, that has shown himself strong in behalf of his people by devastating the Egyptians, leading them through the Red Sea, feeding them during the, uh, during the wilderness wanderings with manna, giving them water from a rock. Every day, that particular, that particular activity would take place but one day. The last day, the greatest day. That is when the crowds were at their largest. And so we might wonder, well, why didn't they do it on the last day when the crowds would have been at their largest? Because that particular festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, it, it was intended to remind them to look back to what God had done during the wilderness wanderings, and to give him praise for it. But during the time of the prophets, it also was intended to point their minds forward that one day, when the Messiah would come, spiritually speaking, the world would be illuminated by the presence of the Messiah in Jerusalem. The darkness of the world would be illuminated by the messianic age and the establishment of God's Messiah seated in Jerusalem. So on the last day, the great day, the the crowds would have been their largest. They, They didn't like that. It was on that day when Jesus stood among the crowds in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In some mysterious but real way, the pre-incarnate Christ traveled with the children of Israel and manifested his presence to them by a pillar of fire at night. And they waited and they waited and they waited for that day when the Messiah would come and that day when the Messiah came and he declared himself to be the light of the world, they rejected him. They murdered him. But notice the promise, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word follow doesn't mean a mental assent that Jesus is God. It doesn't mean mentally asserting oneself to particular facts about Christ. To follow him is to embrace him as Savior and Lord and commit one's entire life to a life of discipleship. Following Jesus means following Jesus into the wilderness, through the Red Sea, growing, maturing, and developing as a fully devoted follower of Christ. And he will illuminate our lives. We will not walk in darkness, but we'll have the light, the light of life. There he was in Jerusalem, the one who had been that pillar of fire, that watched over the people of Israel during their wilderness wanderings, and they rejected him, they denounced him, they murdered him. He's the one that we trust in. He's the one we believe in. He's the one that we love. He's the one that we follow because We believe enough not to be up and down, in and out, on and off, hot and cold, here and there. Though every day's not a good day, not every day's three steps forward, some days are one step back, but we're not giving in, we're not going back, we're not quitting. Jesus puts us in tight spots so that we can learn who he is and where we're at in relationship to who he is. Our tendencies to lose perspective. That's why we need the light of life. That's why we need someone speaking truth into our lives. If you're here today, it may be that it's in a moment we're going to stand and sing. Caleb's going to come and, and lead us in song. and And you might just need to take some part of the message and just pray it back to the Lord. I, I don't know what part of it, it might be for you. Maybe it's praise God I'm not upside down in Northern California with a snake wrapped around my throat. Maybe that's maybe that's where it's at for you. But whatever it is, take just a moment and in the quietness of your heart, offer up prayer and praise to God. Maybe you're here today and you've been looking to join on with us. We'd invite you to come forward so we could introduce you to someone that can talk with you about church membership. Or maybe you're that that doubter. The one that James says, let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Maybe you'd like to talk to someone about where you're at spiritually. Uh, We'd love to talk to you, pray with you, introduce you to someone that can talk to you. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, we're all going to join together in singing in just a moment as Caleb Caleb leads us, so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that the story of the Exodus is a true story and it's our story. that it says something about how we should live and it says something about whom we believe in. And so, Father, in these final moments, we pray in Jesus' name, your spirit would work in the lives of your people for our good and your glory. And, Father, for those who don't know Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name, your spirit would press heavy on their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.